church. And then I started thinking to myself, the Christian life is all about Bible study. Study the Bible. It's, it's really like a classroom where you take a lot of notes. That's the Christian life. It wasn't actually until I'd been a pastor for several years that I finally realized that the Christian life is just Jesus. Beginning, middle, and end. Start to finish Jesus. And I don't know if Tony remembers this, but I was um, got to know some good Christian men, and we would, uh, other pastors, and we would have these conferences at the Lucerne Conference Center. And I was asked to speak. I was very honored. I was the new, new kid on the block. And uh, I was given the topic to speak on, a Christ-centered ministry. Well, that's interesting, a Christ-centered ministry. Why didn't they say Bible-centered ministry, you know? So I got to look into this. Well, it, honestly, it was a result of studying and preparing and praying and talking to other men about that topic that I really had a, a paradigm shift in my ministry. The Christian life is about Jesus Christ. And it was Tony, Artazertia, Frank Griffith, John Carson, men like that that just had a lasting impact on my life. Thank you, brother. Every Bible doctrine finds its starting point in Jesus, doesn't it? Bibliology, the doctrine of the Bible, it's about Jesus, right? Jesus is the author of all scripture, right? Every letter should be a red letter. He's the author. And all of the Bible is about Jesus. How do we know? He said so. It's all about me. Just a little short story. I won't go into it. But I was asked shortly after this real, really transformation in my ministry perspective, I was asked to do a chapel at a large well-known Christian seminary that I won't mention. But anyway, I got to preach from John MacArthur's pulpit. <clears throat> and uh, they, were, they, were they were renovating the chapel, and so I actually got to stand behind his pulpit, and I made it go up and down and the whole bit. And um, I decided, well, I'm going to do something easy. Preaching Christ in all the scriptures. Slam dunk, no problem. Ooh, I got into some trouble there because a lot of those professors did not and do not believe that Jesus is really in all the scriptures. And so a lot of people liked it, a lot of people didn't, and I didn't get asked back. But think about it. Justification, the hinge on which the church turns. Justification is all about Jesus, right? God justifies us solely on the basis of who Jesus is and the work that he accomplished. Our sins are imputed to him. His righteousness is imputed to us. It's all Jesus. The only thing we contribute is our own sins, right? Sanctification, our progress in the Christian life, is all about becoming more like Jesus. Nothing more and really nothing less. And then think about it. Glorification, again, is simply the completion of this work when we become like Jesus as a result of seeing him just as he is. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. We used to sing a song in my 
Jesus freak days. It came from the musical Godspell, which I saw about 100 times as a brand new Christian. It just floored me. It was about Jesus, and it summed up the Christian life pretty simply. Day by day, day by day, oh dear Lord, three things I pray. To see thee more clearly, to love thee more dearly, to follow thee more nearly day by day. Wow. I remember hearing once about Karl Barth, famous theologian, and we don't agree with Karl Barth on everything, but he was a brilliant man. He was lying on his deathbed, and, and someone said to him, uh, Dr. Barth, what's the greatest thought that you can leave us with? He said, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Well, that brings me to our theme for this weekend, bringing back our first love, our first love. I'm convinced that the more you know Jesus, the more you will love Jesus. You can't help but love him if you know him. And the more we behold him, the more we will be like him. So this weekend, I want to rekindle love in your hearts for the Lord Jesus. And I want to do that specifically by looking at his humanity, his humanity. Tomorrow morning, we're going to look at the compassion of Jesus, then the sorrow of Jesus, then the anger of Jesus. And then Sunday morning, we're going to talk about justification and what that means to us. But I want you to turn with me tonight to Hebrews chapter 2. You notice in your booklet there you have blank pages. There's no outline there. If you can find an outline in any of my messages, you win a prize. <laughs> I'll try to fill you in as I go along. Hebrews chapter 2, if you turn with me there. The first chapter of Hebrews exalts the deity of Jesus Christ like no other chapter in the Bible, I believe. If you ever get the knock on the door from your Jehovah's Witness friends and they want to discuss with you who Jesus is, go to Hebrews chapter 1. It's fun to stump a Jehovah's Witness, and you can do that in Hebrews chapter 1. But chapter 2 exalts Jesus' humanity, his humanity. Let's look beginning in verse 14. Since therefore the children, that means the children of God, share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted... He is able to help those who are being tempted. Keep your finger there, but turn over to Hebrews chapter 4, 
Hebrews chapter 4, verses 15 and 16, where the writer of Hebrews completes this thought when he writes, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you're a Christian tonight, Jesus Christ is your Savior, but he is also your friend. A real friend. A true friend. And that's because of his humanity. He lived in this world in the same skin that you are in. He can relate to what you go through and sympathize with your deepest heartaches because he became like you, as the scripture says, in every respect. He got right down on your level. I remember when my kids were younger, as much as I love my kids, it was such a struggle to get down on the floor and play Candyland with my daughters. I would have rather crawled on broken glass, to tell you the truth. Man, that is nothing compared to the Lord of glory coming down, down, down to my level and becoming like me so that he might die in my place to be my savior and friend. I want you to see this weekend what a precious truth the humanity of Jesus is and why it means that Jesus is a friend of sinners, just like you and me. Isn't it interesting, the very worst thing Jesus' enemies could say about him, that he was a friend of sinners, is the best news that you and I could hear. And the reason for all this is to help rekindle the fire of your love for Jesus, because the more you know him, the more you'll love him. I want to talk right now about the necessity of Jesus' humanity. The necessity. Hebrews 2.17 again says, therefore he had to be. The Greek word is ophelo. It means there's an obligation, ought. He had to become, like his brothers, in every respect. In other words, in everything that makes us human, he had to become human so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. It was the only way he could be a mediator, a go-between, a bridge that touches both shores, right? I've just been reading Job, and Job cries out at one point. He says, there's no, there's no mediator, there's no umpire that can put his hands on both of us. There is now. There is now. And his name is Jesus. But this wasn't one of many options that God had. It was the only way to provide salvation for his people for two reasons. It was first and foremost, the incarnation, was first and foremost a theological necessity. About a thousand years ago, the great theologian Anselm wrote a little booklet. The Latin title was Care Deus Homo, which meant, why did God become man? It was just a little tract. 
His answer was that God had to become man in order to die for the sins of his people. And his reasoning went like this. Because we sin against an infinitely holy God, the debt we owe to God is infinite. It's more than we can pay. Only God can pay this infinite debt, this unpayable debt. But the debt was owed by man. So it had to be paid by a man. And if the wages of sin against God is death, then a man had to die because God cannot die. The blood of bulls and goats couldn't do it. No angel could do it. Only a man. So the necessary solution was for God to send his own sinless son, the second person of the Godhead, to this earth as the God-man to suffer and be killed to pay the debt for his people. There was no other option. And I've read people argue, well, there could have been other options. He could have done this, could have done that. And yet I remember Jesus praying in the garden, Father, if there's any other way, there was no other way. We used to sing, he paid a debt he did not owe because I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to wash my sins away. Now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace, all day long. Christ Jesus paid the debt I could never pay. And then he rose from the dead to show that God accepted his payment. Someone put it like this, the debt was paid on Good Friday, on Easter Sunday, the check cleared. I kind of like that. So that's the theological reason for the full humanity of Jesus Christ, why he had to be made like us in every respect. Let me sum it up like this. He had to live our life in order to die our death. He had to live our life in order to die our death. But there's a more personal reason for you and me. The second reason is Jesus had to be one of us to be our friend. He had to be one of us, like us, to really be our friend. And I mean a real friend, a true friend, a friend like no other friend. A little boy got scared one night in his bedroom and thought he heard a monster, crawled in bed with mom and dad. So what are you doing? So he says, there's monsters in my room. They said, you know God is with you. He says, I want someone with skin. <laughs> I do too. And so do you, right? God is spirit. We worship God for who he is in his essence. God is spirit, but aren't you glad he took on skin? That's why the Father sent his Son to be like us in every way, except for our sin. It's not like God was wearing a disguise. It's not like he came in camo. Uh, I used to have a friend who lived in Clear Lake, community nearby, with a lot of problems, a lot of drugs, a lot of drug dealers. And so he was an undercover cop, this guy. And his job was to blend in with all the drug dealers and then at the right time bust as many of them as he could. So he would grow out his beard, look as scruffy as he could for months at a time. Basically, he put on this Oscar-winning act. He said, he said, he could do it over and over again because these people were so drugged out they couldn't figure out what he was doing anyway. That was an act. With Jesus, it was no act. 
whatever it is that makes us human, Jesus was, and let me add this because some Christians don't understand this, he still is. The incarnation did not have an expiration date. He's still in a body. Still in a body. Still a man. And this is where I believe we need to examine our own Christology. Do we really believe this? In the early church, there was an error called docetism. From a Greek word which means seems to be. They, they said Jesus was God, but he just seemed to be a man. He seemed to be. He wasn't really a man. He couldn't have been. God can't become man. I, I think a lot of Christians are practical docetists. They just don't grasp Jesus' humanity. But unless he was a human being and is a human being, just like us, we don't have a savior. We also don't have a friend. So I want to remind you this evening of what the incarnation means. And I want to do it in maybe some stark terms. Number one, it means God had body odor for you. <clears throat> Awkward. Awkward. I'm not trying to be cute. Not at all. We need to embrace this. Real human bodies take in food and oxygen and water, and in return, they produce stuff. You know, they, they also make toenails and phlegm, the crusty stuff in your eyes in the morning, earwax, dandruff. Jesus' body had all this stuff, including body odor. Jesus was a real person, a real person like you and me. He sweat. He slept. He went to the bathroom. He belched. Yeah. And if that sounds irreverent, you've got a problem with your Christology. And your Christology, your weak Christology, is going to affect your friendship with Jesus. Yes. Because you think of him as something that he's not. He's like you like you in every respect except for sin. What's irreverent is the way Jesus is portrayed in most Jesus movies. Uh, I won't go into my own theology on Jesus movies, <clears throat> but I take the reform position <clears throat> on this. <clears throat> Not a fan, but mostly he's portrayed as kind of a half-human zombie, right? He kind of stares off into space and walks around like this and and uh, in the older movies, we, they had Malibu Jesus with blonde hair and blue eyes, right? And a British accent. And I'm telling you, if Jesus didn't have B.O., you and I are still in our sins. Because if he didn't, then he wasn't a real man, and only a real man could rescue other real men and women from their sins. When God came down from heaven, he came all the way down, didn't he? Isn't that what Philippians 2 says? He humbled himself. Not, not, he didn't come as, as one of the Caesars. He didn't come as a great king. He was, he passed through the birth canal, was born to poor, insignificant parents in a small, insignificant town, in an animal stall that reeked of urine. His first bassinet was a feeding trough. He had to let Mary change his diapers. He went through puberty. He probably had teenage acne. 
Have you ever wondered, did Jesus ever get sick? Did Mary ever have to keep him home from synagogue because he had a runny nose? There's a sign up there, you can't do that. Did he ever have a fever? Did he ever catch cold from the neighborhood kids? Absolutely he could have been sick. Absolutely. Just like us. He was not exempt from anything that's part and parcel of our human condition except our rebellion. And again, if that makes us squirm, it, it, it just doesn't seem right to imagine God's son with a fever or vomiting. My friends, that's the scandal of the gospel, right? That's the scandal of the gospel. That God would take on our weakness, humiliation, even take on our death. No wonder Paul said this is foolishness. Foolishness to Gentiles and a stumbling block, scandal on to the Jews. But it's salvation for us. That the God we sin against joined in our humiliation and all the grossness of being one of us to rescue us. Second point, God suffered emotional pain for you. This is another reason I don't like Jesus movies. They, they make Jesus to be, out, be so spacey. He's kind of a weirdo. He has no emotions. He's like Dr. Spock, you know? And I know that dates me, all right, Dr. Spock, who is that? Just ask an older person again. That's not the Jesus of Scripture. Jesus was a very social person. He loved to be around people. And when you get close to people, there is pain, suffering, struggles, right? It goes with the territory. Jesus loved his own family, but there was pain in that family. John 7, 5 says, not even his own brothers were believing in him. Jesus had at least four brothers, and I believe at least three sisters. None of them, including his mother, were followers until after the resurrection. That had to hurt Jesus. And you know, there was friction with his brothers and sisters. No doubt they were jealous of him. Mom, Jesus is being perfect again. <laughs> and Jesus touched me, and I was healed. <laughs> well, <you know. laughs> On one occasion, his family heard that Jesus had gathered a crowd together, so they went to get him. Mark 3, 21 says, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Picture this, they're so humiliated and they're so embarrassed by Jesus that they head off for a family intervention. This is to stop him from making a fool out of himself. That's what it is. He's lost his mind. And then when the crowd tells Jesus that his family is there, do you remember what he asked? He turns to the crowd and says, who are my mother and brothers? Don't you think there was emotion in his voice when he asked that? And don't you think there was pain and maybe even anger in his family when they heard him say, here are my mother and brothers and sisters. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and sister and mother. Think about the stress in that family. 
Back it up to when he was only 12. Do you remember what happened then? There was a family crisis. Jesus was separated for three days from his family, and they had no idea where he was. When his frantic parents finally found him at the temple discussing the scriptures, Mary said to Jesus, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. You know the tone. You could have been lying in a ditch somewhere. You could have at least texted us, you know. They weren't happy with Jesus. Luke 2.50 says they didn't accept his explanation. And no 12-year-old kid likes getting chewed out by his parents. Now, Jesus never sinned. It goes on to say he continued in subjection to his parents. But there were struggles in that family. I remind you again, he never sinned, but he went through all the stuff that we go through. All the stress and anxieties that we go through. This part of being a human. He was not exempt from that. He could have stayed in heaven and avoided all of it, but he had to be made like his brethren in all things. He did it so that he could rescue us. Let me give you a third point here. And that is that God was tempted for you. In the person of Jesus, God was tempted for you. Can Christ really relate, really resonate with his people in their struggles and temptations. Hebrews 2.17 says he was made like us in all things. Hebrews 4.15 said he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Now, of course, Jesus was never tempted to watch too much TV, you know, to binge on Netflix or something. Um, he was never tempted to blow up at some obnoxious driver on the freeway but he was tempted in every category of sin as we are to be selfish and self-serving he was tempted to pride greed lust doubt fear every area of sin that's inherent to our human weakness but in order to save his people he never yielded what does that tell us it tells us that he experienced the power of temptation and the pull of temptation as no person on earth ever experienced it because all of us at some point give in. We've got a breaking point. We've never experienced how far it can stretch us. Jesus never gave in. Can you imagine the pull that he experienced? But out of love for us and obedience to his Father, he never gave in. Someone put it this way, which bridge endures the most stress the one that collapses under its first load of traffic or the one that bears up under traffic day in day out year in year out no one was ever tempted like jesus because he never gave in that's why he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted now i've heard people say well if jesus never sinned then how can he relate to me he's never been a drunk or an addict how can he help me with my addictions? Let me say this. Jesus' compassion and sympathy for us comes from his testing, not from failing the test. Do you really want a Savior who gave in to temptations like you or one who was tempted like you are but never gave in? Behold, a friend of sinners. Look again in Hebrews 2.18. Hebrews 2.18. 
<clears throat> for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The Greek word here for tempted, uh, for you Greek students, you know it can also mean tested, tempted or tested, perosmos. So this is speaking of all the trials and temptations and suffering that Jesus endured as a man. And because he went through all that we go through, his humanity then is like this vast reservoir that we can draw from and drink from when we're tempted and tested. He's sufficient for us in anything we face. But how does Jesus help us? Get down to what's practical. First of all, he has sympathy for us. He's been there. He's been there. He knows. He cares. Do you really believe that? Do you really believe that? He knows he's been there. He cares. This is a daily, sometimes hourly comfort for me as I cry out, Jesus, you know. You know. I, I, I cry out that out often. You know, Lord. I can't explain it. I can't communicate it to others. You know. You know the desire of my heart to glorify you and live a holy life. You also know that the flesh I'm in fights against me because you share that flesh. Lord, you know the struggle. I sing to myself sometimes. Nobody knows the trouble I've seen. Nobody knows, like Jesus, that that is such a comfort. It's the fullness of Jesus' humanity that enables him now in heaven to sympathize with our struggles and weaknesses here on earth. An old friend, Artaxerdia, illustrated it like this. In the physics of music, there's something called sympathetic resonance. It works like this. If we uh, had Michael sit down on that piano and he put his foot on the damper pedal to lift it up from the strings and hit a middle C, and we had another piano over here, and Tony sat down and did the same thing. When Michael hit that C, it would resonate in that C over there on that piano. That's true. Sympathetic resonance. Think about this. Jesus' human body, his instrument was just like yours and mine in every way. He took that instrument to heaven with him, so now when a note is struck in the weakness of our instrument here on earth, it resonates with him in heaven. Back in the Jesus Revolution days, we used to sing a song where Jesus said, I felt every teardrop when in darkness you cried, and I strove to remind you that for those tears I died. And the scriptures teach this. Do you remember what the Lord Jesus said? Lord Jesus is in heaven. Saul is on his way to Damascus to get letters from the synagogues there because he wants to persecute Christians, imprison them, kill them. He's on his way to do this dastardly deed. And Jesus appears to him from heaven. And what does Jesus in heaven, the man, he's in a body, you understand. It's not some spirit. What does he say to Saul? Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
Where's Jesus? Heaven. Who was Saul persecuting? His people on earth. But the Lord Jesus felt all their pain, all their suffering, all their struggles. He still does. We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, our loneliness. He knows what it's like to be misunderstood, maligned, kicked to the sidelines. And in his humanity, Jesus shows us perfectly what our Heavenly Father is like. Psalm 103, 13 and 14. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. Our God knows and cares. Because our God took on skin. And he lived our lives so that he might die our death. I read a story about a pastor who went to see a father who had been cleaning his gun with his son when the unthinkable happened. The gun went off and killed his son. This pastor was praying to God for some words to say to this man. What came to his mind was what God might say. Tell him I understand. Tell him I killed my son, except it wasn't an accident. There's another way the humanity of Jesus is a reservoir of help when we're tempted and tested, and that is, he's an example for us. He's an example, right? That's because he lived his life on this earth as a man in the power of the Holy Spirit the same way we can. Bruce Ware explains this, that Jesus didn't revert to his divine side when things got tough. He didn't press the divine turbo boost when he got in a jam and lean on his divine side. He lived in the power of the Holy Spirit and trusted in his Father. I love what Peter says, 1 Peter 2, 21-23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was sin found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So when we feel torn apart by our trials and temptations, we can look to our friend Jesus and say, Lord, you've been through stuff like this. Help me. Help me to stand on your word, lean on your spirit, trust in my Father just the way you did. And can I say, don't just save this for the big trials. You do it all day long. Do it all day long. Give it all to Jesus. Romans 8.32 reminds us, he who did not spare his own son but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? All things. And it's really in response to going over these messages again lately, I've just been making it a habit to take every little thing to Jesus. Every little thing that would cause me anxiety. Jesus, where did I put my car keys? Where's my credit card? 
What? I do this all day long. You can ask my wife. But didn't Peter say, cast all your cares on him? Because why? He cares for you. He cares for you. You have a man in heaven, Christ Jesus, the God-man, but you must go to him to get the help you need. I'm so glad Michael was teaching us that song. Jesus said that if I thirst, I can come to him. I can come to him. Didn't he invite us? Come to me. Come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. But you've got to turn off your cell phone. You've got to get quiet. You've got to be still and know that he's God. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help in time of need. Do you go to him for grace? Do you ask him for mercy? To help in time of need. That's when you will sense that sympathetic resonance with your own weaknesses and temptations and then with confidence in his blood that purchased your access to the throne of grace, ask him for mercy and grace. Do you need that in your life right now? Then ask him. There's an old hymn in the Gatsby hymnal. It goes like this. A man there is, a real man, with wounds still gaping wide, from which rich streams of blood once ran from hands and feet and side. Tis no wild fancy of our brains, no metaphor we speak. The same dear man in heaven now reigns that suffered for our sake. This wondrous man of whom we tell is true almighty God. He bought our souls from death and hell. The price, his own heart's blood. That human heart, he still retains, though throned in highest bliss, and feels each tempted member's pain, for our afflictions are his. Let's pray tonight. Wow. Father, give us your Holy Spirit. We need your Spirit, Father, to grasp these truths. Father, these are things that we, we might already know. Maybe we've heard them many times before, but Father, we want them pushed deep down into our hearts and minds, Father. We want them to become a reality in our lives that we would come to Jesus over and over. Father, answer our prayer this weekend that we would see him more clearly, love him more dearly, and follow him more nearly day by day. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.